This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. I'm Helen Farmer. I hope you're having a great one. Fantastic to have you with us on today's episode. We had Sophie Smith, the founder and CEO of NABDA Health aiming to empower women with more accessible, affordable healthcare in the MENA region. But we had to take a little bit of a trip back in time to understand why these inequalities exist in the first place. Kuya J. Tolentino was helping us with our finances ahead of the holiday season. We talk budgeting and buying. Q&A with osteopath Matilde Vallad. And I was having a good old belly laugh with laughter yoga practitioner Beverly Wiley. health on the show today with women particularly in the spotlight because 47% of women consider changing their workplace due to lack of proper breastfeeding support and later in life 63% of women say menopause symptoms negatively impact their work and my goodness I don't have data for this region but certainly out of the UK the economic impact on menopausal women leaving the workplace is huge. We're joined now by Sophie Smith. She's the founder and CEO of NAB to Health. They aim to empower women here in the Middle East, but also Africa to effectively manage their health by providing affordable, accessible, women-centric options. Sophie, thank you so much for being here. Um, I've already had messages on this topic. I find it really interesting to think about inequalities. And I think we might need to take a little trip back in history to get a full picture. But before we do that, can you tell us a little bit about you and I guess your mission with NABTA and what that actually looks like in reality? What are you guys doing? Um, so a little bit about me and about NABTA. I suppose at some point the two things become so intrinsically linked it mm-hmm. becomes difficult to unpick them. Um, we founded NABTA back in 2016 with a mission, a very simple mission in some ways of empowering women in the Middle East and Africa to effectively manage their health. Um, what that looks today is a hybrid subscription-based model of healthcare that... Um, focuses on providing proper support for chronic diseases to women. Um, And the reason we decided to focus on this space um, is is due to a couple of different reasons. Um, Let me take a step back, if I may. Um, If you think about traditional healthcare and the way that it's designed and built, it was um, designed in the 1900s when the majority of the disease burden was acute. 85% of things that you fell sick with like pneumonia, infectious diseases, was stuff that a doctor could diagnose, they could treat, the disease would go away, and so would you. Mm -hmm. And so traditional healthcare is really good at doing this, pinning you to a disease and treating the disease. Um, But the fact today, with uh, changes to our environment, um, increasingly sedentary lifestyles, access to very different diets, is that the majority of the disease burden is not acute anymore, it's chronic. Um, about 70% approximately globally. And this is increasing. You know, by 2100, it'll be 95, 96%. And when we're talking about chronic, can you give us some examples of some of the diseases, conditions, issues that you would come under that category just to help everyone kind of understand what we're talking about? So probably the one most people will be familiar with, especially in this part of the world, is diabetes. Um, so that's a chronic condition with a number of different underlying factors of which um, diet and lifestyle are, are the two key ones. Um, but Chronic diseases can include things like heart disease, um, hormonal diseases or autoimmune diseases like endometriosis, polycystic ovary syndrome. Um, The precursor to diabetes, insulin resistance is very, very common. Um, In fact, studies show that almost 9 in 10 adults in the US, 
about 88%, um, now live with insulin resistance. Wow. Of including two-thirds of all normal weight adults. So chronic diseases potentially are things we associate with people who look unwell, mm -hmm. but that's not the case. You can have someone who appears to be perfectly healthy walking down the street um, who in fact has become accidentally unwell. Mm -hmm. So when we think about your initial mission, what were some of the problems that you started to identify in the MENA region? Where were women being let down and what impact was that having on their life and their health? Can you p give us some examples some situations where you thought there's got to be a better way? Well, yes, I think when I, when I first looked at women's health in the region, in fact, um, our, our founding investors shared a deck with me that had a whole load of stats and um, many of them chronic disease related. 80% of breast cancers diagnosed at stage four, which has a 27% five-year survival rate versus 99% at stages one and two. It's the opposite way around in the UK. 80% diagnosed at stages one and two. 40% of women not attending a single antenatal appointment. A lot of taboos, a lot of stigma, um, a lot of evidence that suggested that women weren't accessing care when they needed it. When they accessed it, it wasn't the right care. Mm -hmm. um, and they were taking proportionately a lot longer to be accurately diagnosed and treated with the same conditions as their male counterparts. So let's take a little tip, you know, trip back in time. What do we need to know about medicine and medical research historically with gender imbalance, particularly in mind, Sophie? So women until 1993, and this isn't just in the region, but globally, were almost wholly excluded from clinical trials. In fact, it only became a mandate to include women in clinical trials from 1993, which means that we put men on the moon a quarter of a century before we thought it was worth really examining the impact of things in women's bodies. So to kind of drill down on that, if we're talking about, say, I don't know, a drug trial, for example the impact of that particular medicine on a woman's body potentially could be far, far different to them in terms of dosage, reaction, body composition, all sorts of different things. Exactly. I mean, and drastically different. Um, wow. For the longest time, women were basically assumed to be physiologically small, white men. Um, and still today, 19, so 1-9% of clinical trial participants are female. So there is still a gross underrepresentation of women in clinical trials. And you can see the effects of this in pretty much every aspect of healthcare, from likelihood of um, adverse reactions to drugs, 50 to 75% higher in women, to time taken to diagnose women with specific chronic diseases, on average four times longer than men, even though women are twice as likely to see a doctor in the first place. I mean, the, the statistics are, are endless. <laughs> <laughs> We're unpacking that today and talking about some of the solutions are at hand. What role can tech play? Keen to get your thoughts on this as well, guys. Sophie Smith, Smith is with us today. She is the founder and CEO of Nabda Health. Talking women's health on the show today, for millennia, medicine has functioned on the assumption that male bodies represent humanity as a whole. As a result, we have a huge historical data gap when it comes to female bodies, and this is a data gap that is continuing to grow as researchers carry on ignoring the pressing ethical need to include female cells, animals and humans in their research. That this is going on in the 21st century is a scandal. It should be the subject of newspaper headlines worldwide. Women are dying and the medical world is complicit. It needs to wake up. 
That is Caroline Cuerda Perez of Invisible Women Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. A must read if you haven't. Really, really fascinating. And joining us now is the founder and CEO of NABTA Health, Sophie Smith. We are talking about providing affordable, accessible and female-centric options to women in the Middle East and Africa. Can we talk about some of the socioeconomic factors, income, education, employment and how that kind of intersects with gender to, you know, exaggerate, exacerbate some of the disparities that we're seeing in in women's health? Yeah, so I think one of the biggest um, gaps at the moment that is very well documented and recently by a Nobel Prize winner is around the gender pay gap. Um, Globally, women on average still earn 77 cents for every dollar that a man earns. And obviously, there are parts of the world where this is much more pronounced. Um, And if you think about the mechanisms that underpin the workforce, you can understand why, you know, a lot of companies now have introduced um, very uh, comprehensive diversity, equity and inclusion initiatives that are aimed at getting more women into senior leadership positions, aimed at closing the gender pay gap and aimed at getting women onto boards, etc. But if you think about um, what that actually means, it means supporting women who have given birth and are wanting to return to work. It means supporting women through 10, 12 years of perimenopause and then the postmenopausal period. It means understanding that as women are peaking within their careers, they're also starting to deal with over 35 symptoms any number of which in a male counterpart could be the sign of a really serious disease. And not only that, raising children, perhaps looking after parents as well. It's a really cruel irony. And we are seeing some some moves by companies here, companies international, looking at, well, question from Jay saying, curious about the difference when it comes to equity and equality on menstrual and menopause leave. How is that fair for the men? So can we speak to that, Sophie? I guess... Equity and equality is probably a, a great place to start in terms of unpicking the meanings of those and how that apply to what we're talking about today. Yeah, so let's let's do precisely that. Let's look at the difference between equality and equity. They are different. And I think one of the things that a lot of uh, governments and companies have been trying to do recently is help people to understand that what they are not pushing for is gender equality. So they're not saying we are all equal men and women are the same, our bodies are the same, and we have the same needs. What they're saying is that we need equity, meaning that we need to be able to access the same opportunities. Um, And that looks different for men and for women. Um, Men have different physiological needs, different biological needs to women. We should be having a conversation, actually, about what those look like for both men and women. Absolutely. Um, You know, arguably, how can we look at shifting some of the caregiving obligations away from women if we don't have shared parental leave? If women have, you know, six weeks, three months, nine months, a year's paid parental leave or maternity leave, and then men have two weeks, how is that man ever going to take on uh, take over some of the, the child caring um, obligations? I was on a panel recently um, talking about the realities of working and it wasn't working motherhood. It was working parenthood because out of the four of us speaking, there were, were two men, one of whom um, works at Visa Middle East. And he told me, told us that at this company, men get 14 weeks parental leave and both men and women I thought this was really really interesting thinking about the culture of coaching out of the workplace when you go on parental leave and then coaching back in and I was like could do with a bit more of that because you know to come back to your point earlier about um, you know people I mean I did it myself I stopped breastfeeding far earlier than I wanted to because I was back at work 
within three months. And it's hard. I mean, breastfeeding, if you take the total number of hours that you might breastfeed in a year, assuming you breastfed almost exclusively from up until four to six months and then at least some um, until they were a year old, uh, you're talking 1,200 to 1,400 hours, which is almost a full-time job. So on top of whatever other children you're raising, plus whatever other work you're doing, if you're breastfeeding, you've got almost a, a third job on top of everything else. Um, and, you know, we're, we're very fortunate here. There are laws in place to ensure that um, the option of breastfeeding is there and is supported, um, at least in theory, up until, until, until two years of age. Um, the question is, how can we make this more widely available and more actively and proactively supported in workplaces? If you could wave a magic wand, Sophie Smith, and with that, let's use that as an example, you know, proper breastfeeding support. Um, to enable women to go back to work comfortably, to be able to feed their child in the, in the, the way that they want to. What have you seen internationally, any initiatives or programs, tech, you know, companies that you think you know, could, could really help in this space? Um, so we've got an excellent example, actually, of a company right here in the UAE um, called Pericare, um, which is uh, a company, it stands for Perinatal Care, that does innovative um, solutions for mothers on the go. And they have amazing standalone um, nursing pods, turnkey nursing solutions. Um, they offer a lot of education and support for women who are wanting to return to work um, and continue to feed or pump. Um, and I would say they are building something that could be a, a gold standard globally um, for women's care. They've got a, they've got a number of really interesting um, products. Um, an equivalent in the US to Pericare would be a, a mamava, and they now have Mamava. Mamava. Okay. Yes. Have they, a Google. Yeah, do. They have um, pods statewide now. So I think if I could make a magic wand, oh, make a magic wand. Gosh, if I could make a magic wand. <laughs> if I could wave a magic wand, um, you know, having, having dedicated nursing spaces in every workplace as a starting point would be a really good thing. Mm -hmm. Having some childcare options on site. Um, that maybe you didn't utilize full time, but perhaps, you know, especially we were very lucky again here. We have a lot of uh, support at home. Um, if if you could bring your baby to work or even have your baby at work for a period of time so you could be with them. Um, again, little things like that make a world of difference. Um, we've seen that at NAPTA. Can I sure. ask you about, you've done some research into postnatal um, depression as well. What What, what role do you think that addressing that can have a, on a woman's ability to perform, her desire to perform at work and, and feeling supported in that space? So I think a lot more awareness around the topic would help. When we surveyed with a partner of ours, Rise Birth Centre, who were opening the first birth centre in the UAE alongside Corniche Hospital, um, we surveyed over 400 women and we found the postpartum depression rate. So that's not baby blues, that's PPD, um, to be at 56% in women and 30% in men. Wow. Um, so the, the example you gave, actually, with Visa, of coaching parents into parenthood and out of the workforce and then from parenthood back into the workforce, I think could be a really effective tool, mm. um, not just equipping, again, women, because actually you can empower women by giving them access to information, but you can empower them too much you can give all of the information and all of the access to women and none to men. And then women just end up doing three times the job and bearing the entire mental load and doing all the work. Um, when in fact, if it was shared just a little bit more, 
um, a lot more could be achieved. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that so many men want to have the opportunity and the, 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 it's just not in place, whether that is through the time, the support, the acknowledgement. Um, and yeah, it's, it, it's super interesting. Sophie, we've got a lot of questions on this. Um, so we are, we're going to keep you for as long as possible. Uh, we are talking women's health today and ultimately looking at some of the inequalities when it comes to some of the research, the treatment. I'm curious about health insurance as well. What changes need to be there to better serve women and tech? Something Sophie's very passionate about. What role can tech play when it comes to making women's healthcare, certainly here in the Middle East and Africa, more accessible, more affordable? And what could that look like in practice? Sophie Smith, the founder and CEO of NAB to Health. Talking women's health and women were excluded from clinical trials globally until 1993. We basically landed a man on the moon a full quarter of a century before we thought it might be a good idea to test some some medicines on, on women. Meaning that women today experience noticeably worse health outcomes than their male counterparts. We are talking about being 50 to 75% more likely than men to suffer adverse reactions to drugs. Taking four times longer to be diagnosed with the same chronic diseases despite going to the doctors twice as much. Seven years on average to be diagnosed with endometriosis, which affects around 10% of women. Joining us to talk about this and more is Sophie Smith. She is the CEO and founder of NABTA. Um, I wanted to ask you about that endometriosis um, in particular, because we've spoken about it on the show before and it being such a cruel and confusing disease. This has been an area of your research as well, Sophie. Tell us a little bit about why you think this is such a, a difficult issue for the medical community to, to understand and diagnose. Well, I think there are probably a couple of factors at play. One is that until this year, it was not mandated in most countries around the world for doctors to receive specific training in women's health. So as part of the training that all doctors do, they wouldn't necessarily be taught at length unless they decided to specialise, for example, in gynaecology about a, or, or endocrinology about a condition like endometriosis. Mm-hmm. So there's, it's a little bit of that, you know, you, um, and it's also a little bit of um, doctors being trained and qualified in a specialty and so being experts in a topic but not being able to look at um, women holistically and, and assess all parts of them from their physical to their mental to their nutritional health. Mm. Um, we've had a really interesting message here from Nick, who's not my husband, I've checked his number, saying, does Sophie see a time where men are the disadvantaged group in the healthcare space? So that's a really interesting question. Um, in terms of what that would mean materially, you would need to rerun every single clinical trial and clinical study to include a diverse and a diverse female population in order to arrive at the same level of confidence that we have about the efficacy of everything from drugs to therapeutics to procedures to clinical pathways for the diagnosis of disease in women as in men. Mm -hmm. How long would it take to rerun all of those clinical trials, redevelop all of those drugs? How much time and how much money? I would would guess quite a lot. So... Not in our lifetime, probably, Nick. Um, a message here from Priya. We were just talking about how some of the on-ground work you've been doing in the MENA, um, MENA region um, about making sure that women have access to affordable health care. Um, Priya saying, how about women's health in crisis situations like right now? What hope is there for them? And I think that raises such an interesting point and a, a heartbreaking one in, in some senses when we think about, you know, 
periods continue, birth continues, you know, medicines run out in these situations. With some of the work that you've been doing um, on the ground in some really disadvantaged areas, Sophie, wh- what, what is the work that NABT is doing to really help? And I, I know crisis is, a, is a, an extreme example, but when we think about, you know, situations where people historically haven't had good access to healthcare, what are you doing about that? So again, I mean, the issue of, of birth is a, is a really a really good one. Um, we tend to think of people suffering with post-traumatic stress disorder during times of war. You know, it's something that we support for mental health and for PTSD is something that is reliably provided to veterans of war. But what actually is war? It is day-to-day encounters with life and death and a very sudden switch between a life and a death, um, which leaves a, a stark um, imprint and has a, has a tremendous impact on us. Around the world, every day, women confront life and death situations um, in, in very stark ways and not just during, t- during times of crisis, mm-hmm. um, including when they give birth. And so um, the impact that this has on, on women, um, I think, is something that has never really been fully examined and a lot of the time is underestimated. Now, you take that, that interaction with life and death and you compound that in a crisis situation, or you compound it by putting women in a position where they aren't able to access basic care. And when you're pregnant, there are lots of things that it would be much better to know about before you give birth than at the time of giving birth. Um, Going back to the statistic I gave about 40% of women in MENA not going to a single antenatal appointment, think of what that actually means. It means that you wouldn't find the hole in the baby's heart. It means that um, you wouldn't catch potentially an, an, an early miscarriage. Mm-hmm. So a woman might end up delivering very late um, a baby that she'd actually lost weeks before. A woman would be at more risk, much greater risk for things like gestational diabetes, preterm birth, preeclampsia, ectopic pregnancies perhaps wouldn't be caught. All of these things that can um, go wrong during pregnancy wouldn't be picked up. And so again, if you remove access um, from women, if you put them in a position of crisis where, where, where access to these very, very basic, what have become kind of basic essential aspects of healthcare are not there, then mm. the risk in terms of loss of life and in terms of the trauma that accompanies that are much higher. And then you think about on the other side of birth as well, you know, not getting the support there when it comes to, you know, breastfeeding, infections, you know, it's, 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 it's ongoing. And I think you, you, you're absolutely right. I think just because people give birth every day doesn't mean it's not one of the most often traumatic and transformational things that, um, that a family can go through. Um, I wanted to ask you, I'm, going to, I'm sorry to Anastasia, whose, uh, whose song I'm out of love, I'm about to drop. Sorry, Anastasia. Um, I wanted to ask you about health insurance um, and maybe some of the conditions and issues that you feel like health insurance companies need to be taking more seriously in order to better serve women in their health. What would you love to see change there, Sophie? So I think there are many, many things in this space. Um, probably one of the biggest and most important things, going back to the conversation we were having earlier about really empowering women in the workforce, is changing the way that we think about and classify perimenopause. So the, the tw- 10 to 12 year period leading up to menopause, which is still categorized here as a pre-existing condition. So it's not covered by insurance. And if you submit on an individual or application for insurance that you are perimenopausal, your premium will go up. 
um, and having gone up, um, it also still may not cover essential physical and mental support that you may require, everything from counselling to hormone replacement therapy. And I guess... Lastly, let's talk tech. Let's talk future. Let's talk about some of the things that you are working on right now to provide exactly that mission of accessible, affordable healthcare. What can we look forward to in, say, five to 10 years? How transformational can tech be for women's lives? I think the biggest impact that tech can have on women's lives is to give them back their time um, and their money. When you think about how much time women waste in hospitals, in clinics, either caring for their healthcare probably much later than they should, or caring for the health of their dependents, um, and how much uh, money they spend on unnecessary dependencies that, that are created for them, um, either drug-related or therapy-related. Um, and not to say that all dependencies are unnecessary, but there are many unnecessary ones. Mm. Um, tech has the ability to give women back their time, um, to bring the care to them rather than continuously sending them to the care. Um, if I look forward 10 years, what I would love to see is technology that as, is as impactful and as invisible as we've, as we've seen in the last 10 to 12 months um, with generative AI. You know, something that all, all of the intelligence is in the back end. You can't see it. It's code. Um, but think about the way it can get you to the right answers faster. Think how much time it's saving people across industries. I'd like to see dozens of devices um, and ways for women to interact with their care tests that allow them to spend that limited time that they have um, and today still significantly less money on things that they really care about. Well said. For anyone that wants to find out more about the role of NABTA, what you're working on, and I know you've got lots in the pipeline, what's the best way of finding out more, Sophie Smith? Um, you can follow us on Instagram. We're on Instagram on at NABTA Health, or NABTA Health, so that's N-A-B-T-A Health, um, or drop us a line, yala at NABTAHealth.com. We're Thanks. always happy to talk. If you want to send me the word health, I'd be happy to send you um, those links so you can find out more. Please keep us posted. As I said, I know you've got a lot coming up um, in the region. So I'd love to find out more. And thank you again for some really valuable insights and some incredible food for thought there. Sophie Smith, the CEO and founder of NABTA Health. So what many might consider to be the most wonderful time of the year can also be one of the most expensive The holidays are just around the corner and if you haven't started saving or budgeting for gifts, travel, decorations and more, you could find yourself with a whole load of holiday debt come year's end. On hand this afternoon to help us navigate this and offset it and offer up some words of wisdom, of course take your questions too, is Kuya J. Tolentino, an independent financial coach. He is what he calls himself as an overseas Filipino. He specialises in that community but can help everybody listening today. Already messages coming in on how organised you are, what you've got sorted out already and some of your financial plans when it comes to this time of the year. How are you, Jay? Hey, I'm good, Helen. Thank you for inviting me again. It's always a pleasure. I love having you in the studio because I really enjoy how honest you are about Mm. the pitfalls that you've fallen into Ah. in the past and the learnings that you now carry forward to people who really just want accessible financial tips. It's not about bamboozling people with any jargon. It's about getting our heads out of the sand. And I wondered if you wouldn't mind just for anyone that hasn't heard mm. you speaking with us before, give us a little recap on your mm. journey to being a coach in this, in this space. Yeah, well, before I became a coach, I started 
just to uh, try all the different styles of budgeting and uh, saving and investing. And then um, I, no one really guided me on doing this. So most of the money that I spent or invested on just went to waste. Like <laughs> so much money. I got scammed. Like right when I mentioned in the first interview I had, like first year I got scammed and then I invested on real estate, mutual funds, and then I never really understood how it works. And I lost money along the way. So that first year, I told myself that I should stop uh, investing and uh, doing unnecessary stuff with my money and start learning first. So that's how I started. And then I started teaching uh, people how to budget. And then it felt nice. Like, hey, this is the best feeling ever. (laughs) Helping others manage their finances is the best feeling ever. While I was learning, I was teaching and helping as well. And then some people told me that, hey, you should be doing this. Mm -hmm. And then I decided to um, transition to a career about consulting. And then I realized how the industry works. And then I started doing coaching ever since. And you do this one-on-one, but you also work, go into corporations or work with groups that people put together to to, to come back to some sometimes really basic financial literacy and sometimes by helping kind of elevate their finances and, and get them most yeah. right. If you want, um, Jay's advice, you're more than welcome to get in touch. I also want to know from you, where are you on your holiday planning and budgeting? Jennifer's on the line now. Jennifer, I, I'm, I worry that you're going to make me feel disorganized. Tell me about your <laughs> approach. Yeah, I know. It's, I'm going to sound like the person you don't want to hear from, but I'm pretty much 90% done. Um, my father bestowed on me great knowledge one year when he went from being the worst gift gift giver to the best <laughs> that you should buy year round. And so whenever I see something and it makes me think of someone, I just buy it because especially in Dubai, that. you never know if it'll be in stock or not again. Where do you stash it though? Because I would worry about well, people finding it. <laughs> so I have a box that's known as the present box in the house. No one's allowed to touch it. <laughs> um, and one of the main things I do is the day that I bring it home, if I can, I wrap it and I write a card or a note of what it is on it. So then it's, done when I pull everything out come the time it's just the stress is gone it's alleviated and I also try to exclusively buy on sale or secondhand so I spend a lot of time at first for good finding gifts year round yes. for people oh my goodness please write a book teach me that your ways it is seriously impressive to have that kind of presence of mind because I do buy presents and then they go in the present it's in the bottom of my wardrobe I have the same a box um, and then I'm like, who did I buy that for again? Or a kid's birthday will come up and I'll just kind of, you know, give it out. So you're, it sounds like you are super, super intentional. And that sounds awesome. And not getting into hoarding, you said on your message. You've been accused no, of that. <laughs> no, it comes from a budget perspective. It comes from trying to buy on sale, like I said, trying to buy secondhand. And I was actually inspired by um, my favorite author, David Sedaris. He does the same thing. As he finds things that, you know, sparks the, the thought of someone else, he'll pick it up no matter what it is. So, well, you know, it's not that big of a box. It's just uh, I try to be mindful and meaningful with each gift. Love it. And yes, you are speaking to a fellow David Sedaris fan. Absolutely obsessed with him so if it's good enough for him I'll take a leaf out of that book (laughs) Jennifer thank you so much I'm not going to say happy holidays but happy Halloween and um, take care thank you I'm absolutely going to be adopting some of those practices that was Jennifer Um, and I am I'd love to hear from you you can be as honest as you want how much do you spend at this time of year in the in the next couple of months over the tickets the decor the presence, the travel, and how do you plan for that across the year? Rick said, all in all, I think I could book a week away for the price of Christmas, which is 
shocking. Jay's with us today to talk about some of those common pitfalls that people do fall into and ultimately how to get ourselves sorted this upcoming holiday season. Talking holiday spending, or should I say holiday budgeting, because a staggering 46% of holiday shoppers say they plan to browse or buy before November. I'm impressed. Mm. Kia Jay's with us today. He is a finance coach. Um, and I want to ask you, okay, in an ideal world, mm-hmm. what would we all be doing to get ourselves financially fit for the holiday season? In an ideal world, <laughs> you have to pl- prepare since the start of the year, January, you have to plan your budget for your Christmas spending. That is the idea. Okay, so let, let's let's do a little, um, I don't want to say role play, a little example. Uh-huh. Let's say you've got a salary of 10,000 dirhams. Mm-hmm. How do you work out what you're going to be spending at the holiday season? And then is it a case of having a completely separate savings mm-hmm. pot? Should you put it in cash? What mm-hmm. would you love to see? And let's use that 10 grand as a, an easy easy working type. Okay, working so piece. if you earn like 10K and let's say you'd be spending for, let's say, just 1,200. So set aside 100 dirhams every month. Um, open a sub-savings account. Um, can I mention some of those? Yeah, of course. <laughs> so the convenient ones are NBD, Emirates NBD Live. And there's this new um, app that I've seen. It's Twig Finance. You can set automatic savings. And once it's already set up, each time you receive your salary, it goes there and then open your goal savings account under those accounts. And then come December, then that's the time you use it. Again, you, you, you put your money in cash because if you put it in other asset classes, then you might lose the value of your money because it's short-term But don't make savings. it so easy that you can be like, oh, I'll just dip into my little holiday pot. I'll, I'll top no. that up another time because that's a very yeah. easy trap to fall into. Yeah, but that's why you have to separate your savings account from your salary account and your other uh, savings or goal accounts. Super interesting to everyone's take on this. You're more than welcome to reach out with any questions, your take on this. 4001, no name saying, so many adults, we do secret Santa and then mm. individual presents for grandchildren. Neil says, um, I tend to get a bonus from work most years in November and that's our Christmas budget. Mm. Choose around 8,000 dirham as we spend about three quarters on presents. The rest is on food and Christmassy outings like panto tickets in the markets. If I didn't get the bonus, it would definitely be smaller. Jazz... You're going to love jazz, Jay. Jazz <laughs> says, I've been saving 200 dirhams a week since wow. November last year. So Whoa. I can do all the present shopping for husband, two teenage kids, mum, dad, and two relatives. Food shop is just a normal weekly one. People go crazy at Christmas and it's not necessary. Christmas dinner is just turkey, mash, veg, and gravy. It's so true. I remember, I haven't noticed it so much here, but in the UK, mm-hmm. you go around the supermarkets the week before Christmas and people were, were like piling up trolleys like there was some kind of apocalypse coming. It's like, <laughs> you, and, unless you've got 20 people coming for the entire week, this feels a yeah. little bit unnecessary. And I feel like there are some kind of, a lot, well, not some, a lot of social right. pressures. True. Around that, and actually, a message a message here from Jerry saying, "I personally think things get out of control mm. when I see the piles of presents on social media. This year, the kids mm. are going to get stockings, one main gift, a small one, and the adults are doing Secret Santa. Mm-hmm. So it's also interesting to think about, I guess, people's personal priorities yeah. when it comes to presents. And you and I love the topic of love." <laughs> The five languages of love in particular. True. Um, gift giving is one of the love languages. Um, so if you, for example, if that's important to you, mm-hmm. 
then your family should hopefully understand that. Yes. But it's not about going overboard on cost, surely. Yeah. It's about thought, right? Yes. Um, when, you, when we give a gift, it's more about the intention and the impact of that gift to other mm. persons. And if, it's, if the love language is gift giving, then you have to give something that is useful for the person, not because of just buying see the, something. See, this is the trap, that, I, and I'll, I'll be completely frank, this is the trap that we've fallen into as a family over the last few years, mm. is that we're all, you know, thankfully, very privileged enough to, if I want a book, I'll buy myself that book. Yeah. Um, and then it gets to come to November time, and mum's like, have you thought about what you want for Christmas? I'm like, mum, there's actually nothing that we need. So, mm. you know, it's nice to have something to open. Yes. But in the last couple of years, for example, my... Um, parents have bought my husband. They've sponsored a dog for him wow. at Canine Friends. They're like mm-hmm. pay for an AC unit for the year because wow. otherwise you're buying stuff that you don't you don't need. Yeah. You're filling the house. If you want to give that gift, then exactly that, having something thoughtful. Um, I wanted to, you'll enjoy this from my friend Jane. <laughs> she sits down with her kids every year and I am vowing to do this with mine this year. And they get a piece of paper and they okay. split it into four pieces. Mm-hmm. And it's called something you want, something you need, something to wear, something to read. Mm. So the idea is that you give four gifts to each child and they can put things in that. And I'm sure some of them will, you know, say, I need (laughs) an iPhone 15. Um, But, you know, it's about understanding that. And listen, no shade. If you want to put piles of presents into the tree, you know, and you're in a position to do that. Great. Mm But I do I agree with Jerry. There's, I think there's this kind of fetishization of just like, I find it quite gross, to be honest. Mm-hmm, when I mm-hmm. see presents, I'm like, oh, come on, guys, just calm down. Now, you are going to be a father by next yes. Christmas. Yes. So you're all very, like, disciplined now. Just wait until you see those babies' <laughs> big brown eyes and you want to go Can't wild wait. in the aisles. I know. It is, it is exciting. <laughs> How do you think you're going to manage that? So now we're almost done or halfway through to our um, baby fund. <laughs> and of course, for next year, we're also going to plan for our holidays. And it's something that we, uh, my wife and I, will talk about come January. Mm-hmm. Because every January, we plan for our finances. December, we assess our finances. And in our honeymoon, we did our finances. On, <laughs> that on, was on your honeymoon. <laughs> yeah, on <laughs> our honeymoon. So that's how we are when we uh, review our finances. It's, it's so important to us. Because one thing I realized in marriage is that um, many people, I mean, in, in the U.S., 40% or many of the married couples get divorced. Mm-hmm. 40% of them is because of money issues. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Transparency is is the key. key. Yeah. This is why, um, again, I don't know why I'm being so honest today. Sorry, guys. <laughs> so we have a joint savings pot for things like holidays and Christmas, but then we keep our finances very separate because mm. I don't want to have to justify my eyelash extensions to my husband <laughs> or for him to know how much I spent on his birthday present, for example. So to my mind, it's nice to have some some separate, yeah, okay. separate issues and then some joint finance mm-hmm. goals. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, it really depends on the dynamics of exactly. each of you. Boils down to respect as well. Respect and trust. Remy saying, don't forget all the little costs aside from the presents, like teacher gifts, yeah. advent calendars, decor. <laughs> it's good to have a contingency pot within your savings pot. Remy. Teacher gifts. Teacher gifts. Buckle up for this, ah, my friend. I'll Buckle take care up. of that. <laughs> yeah. Get that into your plan, Jay. <laughs> Joining us in the studio, we have got Jay Tolentino. He is an independent financial coach. 
Tolentino is with us today. He's an independent financial coach um, and he really helps his Filipino community when it comes to financial literacy, elevating their savings and spending. He is known as Kuya J um, and he's on hand this afternoon to help with us. Um, I want to ask you a bit about online shopping. Um, we heard earlier from Jennifer who's saying she buys throughout the year yeah. and often tries to buy on sale and I think next level organisation and absolute yeah. hats off will then wrap the present, put a little label on what it, what it is. <laughs> We've had a message here from Desi saying, are Black Friday deals for real or massively hyped? Mm. Well, I, in my personal view, <laughs> it's more of a marketing gimmick because <laughs> um, you can always buy those things any time of the year, I, I, I think. And most, uh, most of the people who go there just buy things they don't really need. And it's, instead of just saving the money, they buy for things because they think it's on sale. Like, I, I bought a TV, for example, it's 1,000, and then now it's 500. They think they saved 500 dirhams, but they spent 500 dirhams. That's what really happened in your bank statement, in your bank account. So I think it's a lot of it, is, as we kind of talked earlier about, being intentional. Being I'm, a, intentional. I'm a bit like that when it comes to sales, being like, True. oh, it's 47% off. And it's also very hard to understand or get a real read on how much prices have been inflated mm-hmm. before that point, before yeah. the you know, flash sale. Um, I've got some very smart friends and what a lot of them will do, we'll, we'll kind of put things on a wish list, mm-hmm. you know, on Amazon, for example, mm, and keep yeah. a little eye on the prices and then be like, okay, this is actually reduce i will yes. actually buy it but i mean these marketing companies know what they're doing they send they send those messages out you know 11 o'clock at night when we're feeling tired and vulnerable <laughs> and having a late night scroll in a shop yeah. um we've had a, a message um here saying when do you think mm-hmm. you should stop buying presents for older kids that 17 18 year old that's such an interesting question i think so it much is. of it depends on family and culture True. In, really Fili- in Filipino community, you know, mm-hmm. when we're thinking about cousins and aunts and uncles, it, uh, you know, can it get out of hand? Yeah, it really depends on the culture of your family. Like, if you are in a family that is very uh, tight, so since you're young, you, you've been receiving gifts. And when you grow up, you also want to give back. So sometimes it becomes a, uh, it puts a lot of pressure on you as well, mm-hmm. right? So for grown-up kids... It would really depend if they really want the gift or not, right? As long as, again, you, you have to give gifts that will not break your budget. Because otherwise, if you overgive, I had this post, I think, three weeks ago, like, nobody becomes poor by giving, but many became poor by overgiving. Mm, so again, overgiving is the wrong thing here. I, yeah. I think, I mean, for I don't think my mum's listening. Um, my mum and her friends, like, like the, her friends that you know were very close to me growing mm-hmm. up, completely spoil my kids. Mm. You know, they'll put things in the post. I'm like, Christine, they're all called, you know, Christine, <laughs> Sue, Deborah. I'm like, chill out. You don't need to be getting the kids yeah. something. They really, really don't need it. And I really appreciate that yeah. gesture. But there still needs to be a bit of boundaries because then you get into like the thank you notes and the the feeling that you haven't reciprocated yes so with my, my family's coming out for christmas now and as we said earlier we're, mm-hmm. we're thankfully at a, in a position where if my husband wants a book he'll buy a book yeah. you know, what, whatever or a shirt or whatever so i think it's going to be once one gift you know no more than 200 dirhams yeah and then keep things a bit manageable i'd rather go out for a lovely meal i'd you know i'd rather have those experiences if you know and it, it, spend it, that money. it might cause your kids to compare you to your 
uh, to the mm. other people as well, right? Like, mm. why mm. is auntie giving this better gift than you are, right? So, Message here, no name on this one, saying managing Christmas traditions between different families is really difficult. Mm-hmm. My family is much larger and we used to spend um, more on each other than my husband's family. Also, the types of gifts... Mm-hmm. His family expected more practical gifts, whereas my family are more luxury. Fortunately, that has stopped. Cost of living, us moving here, and environmental concerns means we've all cut down, which is a relief. Um, and we've just had a message, actually, on the, on the topic now, saying, um, we agree a set amount for, per person. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, we both come from families that would spend a similar amount anyway. Um, on one side, we agreed between adults not to get anything many years ago because we could never think of things we wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, When the elders of the next generation got to about 19 or 20, I suggested that we stop buying for nieces and nephews after their 21st birthday. It is Mm -hmm. fab and much more relaxed in the lead up to Christmas now. Okay, now for many people listening, they're going, okay, guys, you're making us feel terrible because we didn't (laughs) start budgeting back in January. Okay. So we will, of course, talk about this come January, about kind of intentions for the, for, the, mm. for the year ahead. But we have had a message saying, if you do need to get a loan or a card to pay for the upcoming coming season, any advice? I'm not about demonizing credit cards, because if you're yeah. smart about them, yes. they can be a real friend. So how can you best choose a credit card if that is a route that you want to or maybe need to go down, Jay? Well, yeah, credit cards are a double-edged sword. If you don't know how to use it, it's, it's going to be against you, right? Um, if you are, well, basically for me, if it's an emergency expense, then you really have to set your emergency fund. Mm-hmm. Now, if you don't have that emergency fund, you really have to borrow money, at least find the ones that has the lowest um, interest rate at the very least. right? But again, when we talk about money, we have to focus on things like this. It's more on the preventive measures. Yeah. Jay. We run out of time. Um, thank you for everyone who's got in touch. Hopefully we haven't freaked you out. And hopefully you're feeling a bit empowered and a bit, I don't know, like less pressure about this holiday season. Mm-hmm. It is about the people, not the presence. Um, and Jay, if anyone wants your advice, what's the best way of getting in touch with you? So yeah, you can check my LinkedIn, <laughs> J. Adrian Tolentino, or my website, jadriantolentino.com and other social media accounts as well. So Jay can come in and have a chat. And we've talked about this before on the show in terms yeah. of coming into um, corporations, about yeah. getting you know, a group of um, nannies or helpers together and him coming mm-hmm. to talk to them about you know, investments and planning. If you want his details, just send me the word J, the letter J. I will send you those <laughs> websites. I'm not going to say happy holidays. I will say happy <laughs> Halloween. And I hope to see you very happy soon Halloween. indeed. Thank you, Jay. <laughs> Thanks, Helen. We're talking health now, specifically your body, with osteopath at Wealth, Mathilde Vallad. We are on hand, when I say we, it is she, for she is the one with the years of training, not me. If you're looking to find out anything to do with what's going on in your body and ultimately what an osteopath does, Mathilde, thank you for being with us. How are you? Thank you. I'm good. Thank you. And you? I'm really well, thank you. Tell me a little bit about why you wanted to work in this space. What attracted you to becoming an osteopath? Um, Actually, I'm really passionate about osteopathy since my young age because uh, I can see the benefits of it uh, with the osteopathic treatment. Um, I think it's very and it's like interesting like field because it's all about uh, health and uh, and all about the pain that you can experience in your life. So I think osteopathy can help a lot of people that uh, with pain that can experience all over their life. Mm-hmm. So we can help with the uh, emotional parts. We can help with like uh, back pain, neck pain, like really a lot of 
like a wide range of pain. I think a lot of people live in pain and don't yeah. realize that it's n- <laughs> not normal. It might be common. It might they might be used to it. Yeah. But it could be avoided. It must be very rewarding for you to be able to help people who've been struggling. Yeah. Uh, even for chronic pain, like uh, osteopathy is very suitable for people with chronic pain, actually, because we consider the body as a whole. So mm-hmm. we think that everything is related. For example, if you have like a lower back pain, we're well, not going to work only on your uh, lower back. We'll also work on uh, the upper back, the pelvis, uh, the, um, the organs like stomach, livers, everything that can be related to this pain. So that's why I think even for like people that have chronic pain and they're used to this pain, actually, it's not normal to have pain every day. And sometimes it's a case of going to a doctor for pain and it's just being given pain relief, not looking at the root cause. Exactly. And that's why we're looking for in uh, osteopathy. Um, Please forgive my question. And I'm not going to make eye contact with you when I ask this. A lot of people, maybe me, get confused between a physiotherapist, osteopath, even a chiropractor. Would you mind helping us out a bit there, That's a really good point, actually. Um, So chiropractor... They're using a lot of cracking techniques. Uh, they believe that uh, every pain is going from like the spine. So they're focusing on the, on the spine part. Um, physiotherapy is more for people that had injury, for example, and they need like rehabilitation, re-education, or if, for example, if you have scoliosis and then you have chronic pain for that, then you need to work on the muscle. So physiotherapists will be more about rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. Osteopathy is more, you can go to an osteopath, for example, even for a checkup. Like I have patients, they come like every month, one time a month, just to have a checkup and just to make sure that everything's cool. Exactly. Everything is balanced, uh, joint muscle, nerves, everything. So osteopathy, it's also more about, like I told you, emotional uh, pain that you can experience. For example, if you have a very stressful period, then you can experience migraines, headaches, um, sleeping problems. That's I find that really interesting how, yeah. how stress and trauma can manifest in the body and come out in different ways in different people. Yeah. And even uh, in osteopathy, we also work on the nervous system. So we try to balance uh, the parasympathetic and the, and the sympathetic nervous system. So it's very important to balance emotions uh do people get emotional on, on on the table do you get a lot of release of emotion yeah it can happen sometimes interesting. yeah interesting i had um i had acupuncture a few years ago and he left the room and i found myself getting so angry like I, it was the most yeah. and i'm not I'm, I'm a pretty even-tempered person but <laughs> i could have ripped his head off honestly I, he came back and i was like get these needles out of me and he took them out and i just cried i was like whoa yeah something's going on there yes it can happen like even sometimes during the assessment when we're asking some question about the patient because we're looking for so like the the social part and all the like the 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 mental health of the patient so Mm -hmm. sometimes we're asking some question and they're getting like a bit angry or sad about well um, but often how how we don't often sit down and think about how are you feeling you know what yeah. are you feeling in your body? Yeah. How does that relate to what you're going through in life? So it is quite an exposing thing to go, to go through. It is very important. Um, and we've had a number of messages coming in for you as well about suitability. Before we go to the text line, and we're going to have a, that in just a few minutes, what's coming into clinic at Wealth? What's keeping you busy right now, Mathilde? So I have a lot of patients at Wealth, actually, and we have a lot of services on the side also. Um, so we have like uh, oligo scan for like uh, people who want to like make sure that everything is fine inside their body. Uh, we have chiropraxy, we have uh, physiotherapy, we have many services actually that can, 
it can be like a follow-up for the patient. And so. I guess, as you're saying, we're learning more about that full mind-body connection. Exactly. So you must be working quite holistically yeah. with other people. And what about clients coming to you? Are you noticing any trends and problems? You know, we've got 30 by 30 on right now. Any enthusiastic exercises making their way to you yet? Uh, you need to have a daily stretching. Like it's, uh, it's very important for your daily life. And you have to like, uh, we can work also on your posture so we can help you to like, like improve your posture, if I can yeah. say that. Uh, even if it's like, um, if it's suitable and if we need, we can uh, refer you to any like uh, physiotherapy or, or any um, like podiatrist treatment if needed. All right, we're going to go to the text line next. Joining us in studio, Matilda Vallad, she's an osteopath at Wealth. It's there in Jumeirah, just off our Wassel Road. We've had a question about carpal tunnel syndrome, about ages of clients as well. And Rick wants to know about those clicks. What does it do and is it safe? This content is for informational purposes only and does not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Matilda Vallad is in the studio. She's an osteopath at Wealth Clinic there in Jumeirah. And we've had lots of questions for you, Matilda. We're going to try and get through <laughs> as many as possible. Uh, before we go to the text line, I, I wanted to ask about some of the manipulation techniques that you use. And obviously, sometimes they are targeting a particular pain or issue. But are there kind of general benefits to some of the work that you do as an osteopath? Yeah, um, so it's important to mention that osteopathy is not all about manipulation and cracking techniques. Uh, we're using it when it's needed. So, for example, if we need to crack a joint, then we'll do it. But the sound that you can hear during the cracking is just that a bubble of gas. It's only that. So it's just gas that's just going out of the joint. And that's why you hear it like the crack. Mm -hmm. But it's not dangerous at all when you know like how to do it. Of course, we did like many hours of training before. So when we use this technique, it's very safe. Don't worry about it. And it can be like um, uh, very improving for the patient because it's going to help to to help the body to heal by itself mm -hmm. and uh, to make sure that your bones and muscles are aligned and balanced. So when you're talking about he the healing healing itself, is that to do with kind of blood flow and getting exactly. fresh oxygen supply? And yeah, exactly. It's gonna the manipulation will also improve like the blood flow, the drainage, like everything related to to the body inside and. Especially the blood flow, yeah. Okay, Matilda, to the text line we go. 4001 saying, um, is osteopathy suitable for carpal tunnel syndrome? It is, actually. What is carpal tunnel syndrome? So it's like a nerve problem uh, that you can... Uh, it's In the wrist? Uh, yeah, in the wrist. Um, and it's very painful because when you have nerve pain, you can feel like sharp pain, you can feel stabbed, you can feel like uh, tingling, you can feel mm. like many pain you can experience different pain and it's very like it can be very painful and how so, would you treat that then with a lot of work actually <laughs> it will take time but uh, we have different manipulation and massage especially like deep tissue massage it's going to help a lot because it's going to open the fascia inside the arm and that's why the, the nerve is completely blocked because of the fascia more that most of the time so we work on it a lot uh, we'll manipulate we'll do the massage and everything. And sometimes uh, on the side, they need to have a physiotherapy rehabilitation also. For anyone that's not familiar with that word fascia, what is it? Can you explain what it is in the body? Oh, this and, is and like... kind of a weird one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a weird one. <laughs> I can say it. Uh, actually, fascia is like the deep tissue that you can find. It's like 
on your muscles, on your nerves, everything that is protected, your muscle and your nerves. So this is the, the, the tissue that you can see. What does it look like? Like what, like what color and texture? It's, and- it's red, actually, like skin color a bit. But oh. if you're like if you're cutting your skin, this is the first thing that you can see, actually. Oh. So, yeah, this is the, the, the tissue that is protecting the muscle, the nerves and everything that is related to the... Okay, there you go. Every day's a school day. Um, Fiona's been in touch saying, can it help with posture? Mum is getting to her late 70s and I feel like she's now slowly walking with her back hunched. Some say it is just a natural part of ageing but would love to preempt any further humps. Sure. So osteopathy will not um, correct the posture. It depends on the age, actually. Most of the time you need also rehabilitation. You need physiotherapy. You need to see a podiatrist. You need to wear some soles, sometimes orthopedic soles. Um, but we can help with the pain and we can help you to like learn how to have a good posture and to increase it in your daily life. Like it's very important, I think, to talk about this. Uh, even when you're at work, for example. I'm sitting up straight now. Yeah. I'm trying very hard <laughs> to be a good girl. Well, well, that's a good point, actually. What would you love everyone listening today to be doing, trying, adjusting to keep them as you know as healthy as possible? I'm not saying keep them away from clinic with you because no, it's no, nice, no. nice to go and see you. Yeah. Um, but, you know, to, have, to maybe prevent future pain. First thing, it's very important to have a daily stretching, if I can say that. Uh, I know that it's difficult for uh, to, to find time, but it's just like if you have 10 minutes of stretching, it can be a very good thing for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you need to focus on your posture. It's very important to be straight okay. when you're sitting. Right, come on, give me a little tutorial, Matilda. Yeah. I'm, at, I'm at a desk. I've got one, two, three, four, five, keyboard, <laughs> five keyboards in front of me, yeah. three screens. And that's the main problem. Uh-huh. And that's the main problem because a lot of people now are working with telework and everything so related to a computer phone so for that you just need to take care of your posture do daily stretching do have like a sports activity every day so it's going to help you a lot but you need to focus on that and if i can say something it's do not work on any computer or phone but it's impossible (laughs) (laughs) but it's impossible so now we need to deal with it and um, we we saw unfortunately during the pandemic a lot of people working from home on less than ideal home office setups like my sofa for example um but i mean i've had a number of friends who are concerned about what is it's the unsexiest phrase ever in England, we call it a dowager's hump. So yeah. a little hump at the top the, of the back. The little bump, yeah. Yeah, is that, if not preventable, but could can you kind of straighten that out? It is preventable, actually. It is. Uh, if you're, if you're like, sitting straight and you're taking care of your muscle, back muscle, it's going to help you to be straight and it's going to help you to avoid this little bump. Mm-hmm. It can happen, but you can reduce it and you can work on it a lot with a lot of exercises, with physiotherapy, with osteopathy, with everything related to the muscle. But you really need to to like have a sports activity um, and I think that's a really common trap that people fall into and I have in the past when I've had you know muscle pains or you know bone stiffness and you think I'll just rest and then next thing you know it's like I've been resting for five months now <laughs> I've done nothing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it is 30 by 30. And I know a lot of people have got really good intentions for this month ahead about, as you're saying, being active. That doesn't mean necessarily going to do a boot camp every day and trying no, to do no, 100 burpees. No, of course burpees. not. It's just that now in our like generation, if I can say that, we're very sedentary. Mm-hmm. So it's sedentary. It's very like it's a problem. It's a very big problem now. Uh, so we we need to do our best to not to come home and just have like 10, 15 minutes of stretching or something during the day. Like it's very important. I heard that 
sitting is the new smoking when it comes exactly mm, exactly Matilda agrees one last question so my brother-in-law's having difficulty when he sits for a few minutes by the time he wants to stand his joints mainly his knees have stiffness is that something that an osteopath could help with of course we need to do an assessment uh, to to know more about the pain and how does it feel about it but of course we can work on it Matilda thank you so much for coming in thank and you very happy much happy first me. birthday to wealth as well and thank you celebrating. <laughs> um, I've had a number of people saying what is the clinic it is wealth but it's spelled double W-E-L-L-T-H. Matilda's there with the team, loads of different disciplines and experts. We've had everything from the hair doctor, general clinics. We've had a message about nutrition as well, and you've got a, um, a, a coach on the food front as well. Matilda, thank you so much. This content is for informational purposes only and does not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Talking health now, and uh, I think it's safe to say we all need a bit of a laugh right now. And we all know that a good belly laugh can make us feel amazing. It can take you somewhere else. One woman who didn't realise how much a good laugh would help her is joining us in the studio now. Beverly Wiley is the founder of Wellness We Need. It's a holistic wellbeing company, offers sessions for individuals, corporates, schools, focusing on self-care, mental health and general well-being. Um, and we're going to be talking about laughter yoga. Bev, this makes me very nervous indeed. Oh, please don't be nervous, Helen. <laughs> Before we talk, I'll tell you why it makes me nervous in a minute. Before we talk about laughter yoga in particular, I'd love to hear a little bit about you and I guess what we need to know about you and that what, you know, the kind of, that brought you here and, and got you to this place of wanting to help people through all sorts of different types of healing. Sure. Thank you. First of all, thanks for having me. My it's pleasure. great to see you. You're looking fabulous. Back at you. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I went through a little bit of a difficult time myself um, with my previous job. It actually wasn't the job itself. It was a situation that I'd been put in by my employer. Mm. But it's rarely a, the job. It's often the people. Yeah, that's a whole other show. <laughs> <laughs> we need a lot of time for that one. Um, but yeah, so honestly, I just started doing a lot of things to help myself. I did um, some Reiki, some sound healing, yoga, laughter yoga, all the different things that I actually ended up being certified to do now um, to help other people. So yeah, um, when I finally left my job, I had like a three-year uh, resignation period, the longest period in history. Sorry, what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I had resigned and I agreed to stay one year, but then it just <sighs> got a little bit crazy. Oh, yeah. So um, you're after free now, yeah, I'm free. <laughs> and look at me now. I'm on Dubai Eye with Helen Yay! Farmer. <laughs> Who's laughing now? Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. But, but it is amazing. To, and I think it's actually really meaningful that you understand um, the power of some of these techniques. For sure. I think where I think a lot of people struggle, and I'll be completely honest, is when we're thinking about kind of so-called alternative therapies, a lot of people, unless they come from a culture or a background where, you know, yoga has been part of life or there's been open conversations about mental health and self-care, it can feel a bit other. It can feel like, oh, that's something that other people do, mm -hmm, which is sure. why I think it's so great that corporations are kind of taking a bit of a stance and saying this is important to us and we want to normalize some of these things. So tell us about some of the sessions that you're offering and, and where you're currently working from right now, Bev. What's, what, where, where can we find you? <laughs> well, I'm, myself, I'm based in JLT, but I do rent a space near Kite Beach, um, which I do different um, group sessions at. Um, my license covers me to go anywhere. So I'm allowed to go to individual homes, offices, studios, hotels, resorts, you name it. I'm there. Oh, wow. <laughs> right. So we are talking about laughter yoga. I think it is really appropriate. I think the world is feeling 
very, very heavy of course. right now. Um, and that can, sometimes it can be a global issue that you know, we're going through right now. Sometimes it can be a company that's going through a tough time or a good time and they want to you know, keep on bringing people up. Sometimes it's an individual that has got that presence of mind to say, do you know what? I could really do with a bit of help. So tell us about what laughter yoga is. Yes. So laughter yoga was actually founded by a medical doctor, uh, Dr. Madan Kataria, who is um, from India. Um, it was founded in 1995 in a Mumbai park, just with five people to begin with. Um, they started off by telling jokes and things like that. But then, of course, jokes run out or maybe you start, you know, being a bit offensive or crude or rude. Or, You're overthinking it. And yeah, and it's, it's there's point. no need for that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, so basically um, he he was writing actually for um, some magazines about the joy and the benefits of laughter yoga. And he thought, like, OK, maybe we can just like fake it till we make it. <laughs> so that's exactly how he started. He came up with 40 foundation exercises, which obviously you're using the, the breathing, which I'll explain. But um, the exercises are really just you follow me. I would show you how to do them. We'd do them together. And then obviously we, we laugh together. Okay, so this is what happened last time. Okay. We did laughter yoga on the radio. And I'm, I might not be indulging in a session today, but in our old studios, this is years ago. This is like six, seven years ago. There was yoga fest and a lady came on to talk about, she was doing cacao ceremony and she was doing laughter yoga. And I had some of the cacao before the show. And <laughs> it was more powerful than I'd realised. And I, this is, we talk about corpsing on the radio, so basically just completely losing it. Mm. And I lost it. <laughs> I was trying to breathe. I was trying to be professional and I couldn't stop laughing. Oh, I was like, I was like a middle school kid, <laughs> you know, choir performance, getting the giggles. And it, but it, what really proved to me was actually just how powerful it was. And I say that as a pretty... You know, I'm, I'm British, right? <laughs> you know, I do feel quite self-conscious in these situations. How how much do you have to work with people, especially in corporations where they might be feeling self-conscious sitting next to someone? You know, being quite vulnerable, doing something that is quite silly. Mm. Can that take some time? It hasn't really. Um, the thing is, I think it becomes so contagious. So even if you fake it till you make it, your body cannot actually differentiate between real and fake laughter. It's been scientifically proven. So that's the beauty of it. You can just start laughing and someone will join in and then someone will join in. And then people, you actually end up crying with laughter because you're actually holding emotions in like any other kind of meditation type thing. Um, and that's why it just becomes so crazy. Like it's so much fun, honestly. Well, what are the benefits? Then? Are you talking about emotional release? Is that the main one? And yeah, I mean, it is. But the main one really is the increase in oxygen in your body. So because the reason it's called laughter yoga is because we're using the same breath work. So it's when you breathe in, you push your belly out the same as yoga. And then when you exhale, we do do some general exhales, but also we would use the exhale as laughter. So that's the kind of aspect. But yeah, it, it helps your oxygen levels really which is the main thing mm -hmm. which um obviously then you're you'll struggle for any disease to take hold of you and that's why it's one of the most I had a really beneficial. odd experience a few years ago where I was recording a voiceover I was recording an advert and I got into the booth and they're like okay so if you could laugh now I was like, are you joking? Like, that is just, <laughs> what? And I couldn't, I couldn't do really? it and what they had to do is they played audio of a guy laughing in my ears and I couldn't stop. 
So it, you're, you're absolutely right. It's completely contagious. Um, you just attended the World Laughter Yoga Conference in India. Tell us about that. What was that I like? Did, was, yeah. it, was it a laugh a minute, Beverly? Who would even think that that was a thing? Honestly, like the World Laughter Yoga Conference. I couldn't actually quite believe that I was there myself. Um, it was fascinating. It was, um, it was really beautiful. There were so many good things. First of all, it was held in an eco resort in India literally in the middle of nowhere, which was beautiful. Um, and we did a lot of different things. We went out to visit different um, like facilities. Like We went to, like a, I'm not really sure how the correct term to say it, but like a mental health facility. Um, and they actually, the ladies and girls there actually did a few shows for us. So it was really humbling. Cause, and they were so excited that we were there. And we were there with the founder himself. So we did some laughter s- sessions with them. Um, we also went to um, a theatre and there was lots of different laughter yoga groups that came to meet us and we all laughed together. I mean, they literally were surrounding me, I think maybe because I'm blonde, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but they were literally like grabbing onto me and it was like, can they get their selfie with me oh. and all that stuff? It was really lovely. Um, but yeah, other than that, in the actual conference, I mean, there was lots of speeches. There was lots of people from all around the world. There was, I think there were 16 different nationalities there. Wow. Yeah. And then back here in Dubai, as I said, you're working with corporates and you've worked you said off air we can't talk about who but you know some some very some very big and very fashionable names um about coming in and, and working with some of their employees what's the feedback been like beverly um really really good yeah i'm obviously conscious that i'm not allowed to name That's drop okay. but i'm trying my best <laughs> but yeah um some really big brands uh, worldwide brands here one in particular was doing a worldwide training for all of their team i, I won't name what the the training was because it might also give a clue but one of it one of the aspects was um bringing joy into people's lives so I was the first up every day so it was like two days they were doing like obviously joyous type things during the day and then the second day was more serious training so I was do I did seven session sessions with them at a hotel in Dubai oh come on then should we do a couple of examples I just I just (laughs) I just want to kind of demystify what a session could be like so can you give us a couple are you talking about some of the 40 exercises that um, Mm -hmm. that the doctor created can Mm -hmm. you can you give us a little bit of a a teaser a taste um i can but i mean normally you would say minimum five or six people for it to actually work but but we can we can we can definitely make an effort together can't we helen oh my gosh i'm so glad this is not on facebook live (laughs) (laughs) so am i Okay, so one of the really famous and one of the foundation exercises is the milkshake laughter. Okay. So for people that are obviously listening, we have to imagine that we're holding two cups. Um, Before we had fancy Nutribullets and things like that, obviously we would blend our milkshakes. So we'd go from one cup to the other. So if you have your uh, cups in front of you, holding your hands out with imaginary cups, and what you would do is, I'll I'll show you first, then we'll do it together. Don't do this if you're driving, by the way. Yeah, please, hands on the wheel. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, you basically would go A, 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 and after the third one, we would pretend to drink but instead of drinking we laugh <laughs> oh my god so we're going to do it together you up for it uh-huh. <laughs> your idea okay yes <laughs> and then i'm going to go to the traffic very quick okay so we've got two so, cups and we're going to pretend to pour from one into the other let's okay. do it together okay. ready so go. let's go a a a, a. <laughs> <laughs> it is contagious <laughs> 
Oh, okay. <laughs> I think I would like to do it away from camera yeah. with the safety of you in your beautiful studio. Thank you. Um, for anyone that does want to get in contact with you, and as I said, it's not just about laughter yoga that you do. You do sound healing and Reiki. Um, what's the best way of getting in touch with you, Bev? Uh, Instagram is the main one, really. It's at Wellness We Need. Um, or you can also send me an email, which is hello at wellnessweneed.com. Tell you what, if you want to send me the word yoga, I will send you Beverly's Instagram so you can find out that you can contact her, whether it is for you, whether you want to put together a group, or you are indeed someone from HR and management who think, yeah, your employees could do with a good giggle. And I think. I think a lot of people could benefit from that right now. Send me the word yoga to 4001. You don't put your name on it if you'd rather not. And I will hook you up. Beverly, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, Helen. It's been a giggle. I would expect (laughs) absolutely nothing less. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.